This is the Future of Cyber Risk podcast, brought to you by Team Cymru. I'm your host, David Monier, fellow at Team Cymru. Let's jump right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening to another episode of the Future of Cyber Risk podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Philip Amann, former head of strategy, the European Cybercrime Center for Europol. Philip, thanks for joining us today. Well, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you tonight. Thank you very much. So, Philip, first, why don't we get started by telling us a little bit about your background, what it is you're doing these days, and kind of what motivated you to end up where you are? That's a good one. You know, I've spent uh, probably, you know, way back, started my career with the military behind the keyboard and then, you know, working in the financial sector for a while. But I joined a number of international organizations working in different roles, intelligence roles, you know, working for organizations like the International Criminal Court or the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, you know, monitoring the commission of chemical weapons and the whole intelligence side of things. So, you know, very diverse, but then slowly moved into, if you will, the cyber arena in different roles, you know, working for places like the uh, OSCE, Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, more in a governance role on cybercrime capacity building. And well, joined about nine years ago, Europol and the European Cybercrime Center, and they're really supporting EU member states in combating cybercrime, but also a lot of non-EU partners, including the US, in really running very complex, you know, international cross-board organizations with the focus on going after the bad guys, disrupting the criminal business model. So that has been, you know, a big part of my life for the last nine years. So really, you know, if it will, sort of a transition, which also means I'm very lucky to have a very broad experience, if you will, and mm-hmm. also have had, had the chance to work in, on different aspects when it comes to cybersecurity and cyber resilience or combating cybercrime, which I think is also helps you, you know, to understand, you know, what are the capacity building problems, you know, what are the technical issues, what are the policy global issues? You know, we just last week, we organized a, a side event at the UN. You may or may not know, viewers may or may not know, there's currently a very important, important process going on at UN level to develop a new UN cybercrime convention, but quite a tight deadline, you know, end of next year, there should be a final text. So it's really important for us to be part of this discussion. And we managed to organize a side event uh, last week in Vienna, just to showcase what Europol does with its, you know, EU partners, but also the non-EU partners, what we offer in terms of cyber capacity building, you know, what we do in terms of in concrete, giving concrete examples in terms of international cooperation. So that's really helpful to understand, you know, the political component, the governance component, the strategy component, the technical and tactical issues when it comes to combating cybercrime, but also to, you know, ensuring cybersecurity and cyber resilience. Sure, absolutely. You touched on two things there that if I may, I'd like to double click on. So the one is you mentioned kind of your general experience being so useful. And I have to tell you, like the number one tool that I bring to the problem solving that I'm able to do is a general understanding of many things. Like, you know, we as technologists, a lot of times we forget how hard it is to apply the knowledge that we have without some base knowledge of everybody else, right? And that kind of, let's call it, you know, general interest in things, because I'm like a person who's just interested. If something's new, it will have my attention until I'm bored with it. And bored could come from a number of ways. It could be I've learned so much about it, there's nothing else to learn, which that's never happened in my life. But Or I get bored with it because I find out, you know, this isn't really applicable to me. This isn't so interesting. What was interesting with that? It was new. But I pick up all these little things right along the way. And sure enough, 
probably a third, a quarter to a third of the things that I have learned totally out of just because they were new later in life have turned out to be very useful for me to like maybe understand why something's important to somebody else or maybe how their business functions and that kind of generalized knowledge, incredibly powerful. I couldn't agree more. And I think there's also another important aspect for me, and that's definitely based on my you know, work with external partners. EC3 spends a lot of resources on stakeholder management. We have three advisory groups with about 70 senior experts from the financial sector, from the telco community and the cybersecurity community. And we come, they come together three times a year. And it's all about result-based collaboration. And working with them is hugely important, but also we have a network of academics. And what I wanted to say is, you know, yes, there is a tendency to say, well, you know, you need to have a technical background, which, you know, it's very useful. But I've worked with somebody like, you know, Mary Aiken, for instance, who's a cyber psychologist. I've worked with others who are coming from different backgrounds. And that's also hugely important because then we look at things like we started a supporter project funded by the EU. It's called the CC driver, you know, Cybercrime driver project. And the question is, what are the drivers? What are the motivations, for instance, for young people to drift into, into cybercrime, you know, and how, what can we actually do to get to them? You know, those young people who are tech savvy and get them sort of on the right track. And I think that's also hugely important, not just the diversity, you know, what you, I think you also alluded to, you know, meeting those different people, but also being able to work with people with different backgrounds, not necessarily technical, but, you know, if you complement each other. I think that's where the sweet spot is. Sure. No, for sure. You know, driver programs are incredibly powerful. I had the very rare opportunity and honor to go assess a youth program that the Japanese government puts on for their kids, and they just call it security camp. And it's like a summer program, you know, like you would maybe, you know, any Western country where you go play sports and canoe and camp or, you know, that type of camp. Or I guess there are other unique ones where like kids pretend to go to space and things like that, space camp or whatever. But there they were teaching them cybersecurity. And I was very interested to see how they have found kids that maybe did either demonstrate these capabilities, but or were got in trouble. And instead of punishing them, they encouraged to channel them towards that. You had mentioned something also at the beginning of our conversation here about how you were in Vienna and you guys were working on a United Nations action for around cybersecurity. And I mean, we could talk about this specific topic for hours. So I just want to touch on one small piece of that. And in your opinion, how easily is it going to be for an organization like the UN to understand the challenge of attribution in electronic space? Because I would argue the only reason why we don't have some convention presently is because well, it's pretty hard to be able to do that. And all of those conventions, right, they went in one of two veins, either some type of economic or let's call it data response or a second, which is some type of kinetic outcome. And that's for sure very, very risky. So how do you think they're going to tackle that? So that's an interesting one. I mean, we're not involved in the discussions. That's, you know, the EU commission that is the voice and has the mandate to speak on behalf of the 27 EU member states. But attribution is definitely going to be one of the topics. But, you know, there are also, to my knowledge, very important, but also difficult, challenging discussions around, you know, terminology, scope of the convention. So this is really a unique piece, a new convention on combating cybercrime. So in that sense, it's hugely important to get it right. But since we're talking about the UN, you know, you have different views and, and different standpoints. And that, of course, as always, when it comes to UN, you know, the, the challenge will be to 
to find the right compromise. Uh, they have a tight deadline, so I think it's going to be challenging. But from what I hear, also speaking to you know to, uh, the Austrian cyber ambassador, what is very promising is that most countries, if not all of the countries, have sent their experts. So they really have well-informed discussions. And you know, it's again, being the UN, you would expect some differences and differing opinions. But I think uh, attribution is definitely one of the topics that they'll be looking into. And of course, as you would know, you know, there are different types of attribution. When it comes to Europol EC3, I mean, again, we're not, you know, an active member or actively involved in the discussions. But, you know, at EU level, we have, for instance, the cyber diplomacy toolbox. And that really defines how the EU responds to a cyber crisis or cyber attack. You know, that could be, you know, all sorts of things. It could be just, you know, a message, a PR release. It could, you know, try to identify a person or an attacker, and it could go up to, you know, some sanctions. But typically what we would do to the extent that we're involved, or Europe EC3 was involved, uh, is involved in that, you know, it's more the technical attribution. Mm-hmm. So the political, uh, legal attribution is done done at different level. Sure. But I think to your point, I think, you know, it is one of the biggest challenges in cyberspace. And as we know, sometimes even if you do get to the point where you can attribute a criminal actor with a high level of confidence, you know, well, if they're sitting in certain countries that don't collaborate with you or with the EU, then you will probably stop there. So it's, right. it's certainly one of the big challenges in cyberspace. Well, I'm sorry to hear, I was hoping you would just say, oh, well, we already solved that with this. So, but I guess we're not there yet. But so talking about kind of that bridging the gap. So how has your technical background, you know, helped you engage these kind of non-technical associates? Let's call them associates because they, like you said, they're fighting the same fight. Uh, they just don't happen to be. So let's call them associates. But how has your technical background helped you to engage those non-technical audiences and, you know, bridge those kind of domains of expertise and still work towards success? Well, I think in my case, obviously, it helps me to understand the technical aspect of an attack of the techniques, tools by criminals. I think it also helps you probably to A, understand a little bit how things may evolve in the future. And equally, you know, sometimes, and I've seen this also, you know, we just published not too long ago a report on the metaverse, policing the metaverse. And uh, by the way, all the reports I'm going to mention, they're publicly available on the Europe website. So that was a report just looking at the metaverse. And I guess that comes with age. You're like, well, this has been around for a while. So I think that also helps you to understand artificial intelligence, another example where, yes, things have really sped up. And we just also, I think that was one of the latest report that our Invasion Lab published on JGPT and large language models, mm-hmm. looking again at the potential criminal abuse of these technologies. But again, it helps you to understand, well, you know, I'm old enough that I programmed neural networks back in the 90s. So it's that helps. But specifically to your question, I think, and that's where, yes, I do understand a lot of topics, certain topics I don't, you know, you go, like we all go deep in some areas, you know, because it's just too broad. But there where I really do have a good understanding, I think you get to the stage where you can translate certain concepts and bridge that, you know, and talk to a person that has strengths in other areas, a lawyer or somebody who is more of a a policy analyst. And I think, again, that's the sweet spot. And we have examples where we may be asked in the context of a new regulation or some legislation that is being worked on at commission level. And we may get asked the question, well, you know, those are the fines or those are the thresholds that we want to introduce in a legal text. Would that work from a practical point of view or from a technical point of view? And I think that's where it's really great to have that ability to translate technical concepts into a language that then 
a lawyer can take or a policy maker can make and run with it and develop a legislation, for instance, that is fit for purpose. And I think that's really great. But equally, also learn from them to understand, well, what are their challenges? You know, if you're a lawmaker, then obviously, you know, one of the challenges you have is to draft legislation that is as technology neutral as possible because you can't, you know, change your text every five or six months. And I think that's also something sure. where I think a technical background helps a little bit to say, well, you know, how can we make this a little bit more specific on this now, this current technology, and just make it a little bit more future-proof to ensure that, you know, it also is valid and applicable in four or five years from now. I can give you one interesting example. I think for me, that was interesting. I mentioned the metaverse. And again, you know, it's been around for a while. There's one of the platforms out there is Second Life, which has been around, I think, for, you know, quite so many years now. Yeah, yeah. A very long time. And there was a case, the first case, I think, in relation to child sexual abuse, when I think it was in 2007, if I'm not mistaken, in Germany. And it was an avatar. So it was a completely artificial depiction of child sexual abuse. But the legislation was robust enough to capture that because the legislation said, you know, any kind of depiction of child sexual abuse is illegal. So we don't care whether it's a real person or whether it's an avatar. And I think that to me is a good example of robust future-proof legislation because whatever you do, you know, whatever you make up, I think the legislation will hopefully catch that. Sure. No, wholly agreed. You know, here I happen to live in Florida in the United States and I've been here for, I guess, a little over a decade now. But one of the things I found very interesting when I got here, it was kind of the peak of the, what they call bath salts. It's some kind of psychedelic compound related to amphetamines. I guess it's, you know, it's really hard on a person's body. They have psychotic episodes and all this stuff. And I guess the first pass of this law, they wrote down the compounds and they start, it's like some string of letters. Uh, I want to say 2C and then followed by other letters. There were like B and H and threes and I mean, some numbers it's, you know, because it's a chemical compound. And apparently as long as it starts with two carbons, you head down this beginning path of it's going to be one of these amphetaminal salts. Well, they wrote this law and everybody just pivoted to one small chemical change. And now it wasn't that anymore. And you could go into gas stations and buy this stuff. It was because it's not illegal. And I mean, and you're finding people, you know, laid out in front of the gas station because they would immediately go out and do the drug and then they're collapsed, right? So Florida, it took them, I think, three passes of that happening where then, okay, now we got to go add a couple more. And like you said, this process is uh, non-trivial, right? And never mind all the other stuff then that goes along with doing government work, at least here in the United States. I mean, if you want to change one thing, you got to buy 10 things because you end up with all these riders that come along with the law, right, in order to get it passed. So very quickly, the Florida legislature figured this out. They were like, this isn't going to work. So they passed a resolution that said something like, basically like, even if we haven't thought of it yet, if it gets you intoxicated, it's illegal here. And the law passed. And then the citizenry tried to push back on that. And they said, no, you, this is it. We're not, you know, we live in the United States, you know, liberty, justice, you know, whatnot. And you can't just have a law like this. And they tried to shoot it down. And the Florida Supreme Court was like, no, we're going to go ahead and keep this one. And it's the last I heard of it. So I assume it's still in place today. I don't know if, you know, maybe there's an appellate process that somebody's in right now that may change that because, you know, they get caught up in some blanket rule right. like that. But it was very interesting, like to see the kind of the failure, like if you don't future proof your plan, it may cost you who knows uh, how much. So absolutely. Yeah. You had talked about kind of like 
how collaboration goes as far as trying to do like sanction and things like that. But those are kind of, you know, the outcome step. What thinking, if we were to back up a step and think as far as defending goes, so preemptive efforts, what role do you think that international collaboration plays in that? And if you do feel, you know, how it is, how do you foster that collaboration between international entities? Well, I think as you will probably know, it's absolutely key, especially when it comes to combating cybercrime, but also cybersecurity, cyber defense, you know, improving cyber resilience, collaboration is absolutely key for many reasons, especially, you know, to you speaking from a law enforcement perspective, you know, it is one of those crime areas where a lot of the potential evidence, the relevant information is held by industry, where the infrastructure that is being abused for criminals is, is, you know, controlled by industry. You know, they may have specific knowledge, skills, and expertise. So there is an implicit need to work together to be effective and efficient. So it doesn't go without collaboration. It has to be there. But then as always, you know, it's easier said than done, isn't it? You know, because somebody once, I think it was a Microsoft money manager who coined that phrase, you know, the information sharing collaboration is the thoughts and prayers of the cybersecurity community. And I think there's some truth to that because we've been, you know, for the last 10, 15 years, any event you go to, you know, we need to work together. We need to share information. And I think the real challenge is in walking the talk and looking at European EC3, I would say, you know, a very successful model of uh, that kind of collaboration, working with industry, but also with other EU bodies. Mm-hmm. And it's all about, you know, putting in the resources, creating that trust environment, but also ensuring some sort of, you know, just because the problem is with trust and informal exchanges, you know, that breaks down once a person, you know, moves on. So I think one of the things we also try to do is make this a little bit more sustainable, if you will, and more robust, you know, less dependent on people. And that I think is a difficult one, but, you know, trying to find the common ground, the common incentives, you know, why do we work together? You know, if you industry shares information with law enforcement, what are they getting in return? What is the impact of that? So it is a long process. When it comes to that cyber defense, cyber security, cyber resilience, also prevention and awareness, it's hugely important to also have that uh, international collaboration mm-hmm. um, to streamline efforts, also to ensure that your messages get translated into, you know, the national languages get adapted to cultural backgrounds so that you also have those network of partners that can help you with that and reinforce the message. So it's for us, it's one of our key assets, I would say, but again, it takes a lot of effort and we need to constantly improve, adapt and ensure that we have, that we provide added value, meaning that everybody involved gets something out of it. And, you know, that could be, well, you mentioned somebody in the press release, you know, it could be an operational success that then, you know, helps everybody involved and really has a, you know, measurable impact on the ecosystem. Mm -hmm. It could be, well, you know, pre-sharing some reports, you know, we get sort of you know, exclusive access to some reports, you know, giving them partners or getting access to information that is not in the public space, those kind of things where you can really work out, but it is an ongoing effort and you really have to work to get there to that level where it works, where you see eye to eye and really work together. Sure. No, I I completely agree. You know, I've been a member of the international CSER community for 25 years, something like that. I helped build one of the ISACs in the United States, the okay. Research and Education Networking ISAC as part of the Internet 2 project. And I moved from there to Team Cymru and, and that kind of moved me, I guess, up from having a US focus to, you know, because we provide threat intelligence as part of our CSERT assistance program. 
at no cost to national, regional, non-commercial sea certs around the world, at, you know, again, at no cost. So we give it to them every day. These are the millions of devices we've seen on the internet today that were compromised. These ones appear to be your remit, you know, do something about it. So I've had the chance to meet practitioners from all around the world in both the form of incident security response team. So first, and then also at the Task Force C-Cert, presently part of the Open C-Cert Foundation, but prior to that was part of Giant and whatnot. So, and I know, I have noticed uh, there is a clear trend. What I have discovered is there are three types of C-Certs. And now think org chart here. There's the C-Certs that fall under somewhere under their justice department, meaning the C-Cert members carry a badge. They are actually some variation of law enforcement. Think of a technical analyst. Then there is the second category where they do not, they are some type of, they still are the national C-cert, but they are typically fall under a different division of the government, say like an equivalent to the U.S. State Department or something where they don't have, let's, for lack of a better word, and, and no offense to everybody out there who works in the State Department, but they don't have teeth. Like it's not like this person doesn't have a badge, right? And then there is the third category and where they fall under their defense department. And those ones are typically like, to give a comparison, would be your MI5 or would be your NSA or would be your FSB or someone like this, right? Or sorry, maybe more GRU, maybe a, a better example. But And I have firsthand identified there are three types of sharing that happen as the result of there being these three types of CSERT teams. There's the first team, like I mentioned, that reports up to the Department of Justice, and they're happy to share data with their peers in that silo. They don't typically share outside of that, and they don't share to people who can't support that lead or help them gather intelligence. So they don't share their information with other teams that aren't involved. So like you said, maybe they're all working on a case together, and if they find that there is a lead that's in somebody else's area of responsibility, that group now is welcome to join, but no other country is. So they handle it very much like an investigation, you know? And then you have the open groups where, again, they don't, again, they, I hate to call it teeth, but where they don't have teeth, they'll share with everybody. They don't have a problem with sharing with, well, like openly, but when it comes to critical components, they are less likely to share to their DOJ or their Justice Department friends for fear that they will get caught up in some type of subpoena. And they certainly don't enjoy sharing with their national CSER friends that report up to a defense department because they know full well that they are basically informing a foreign intelligence apparatus. And then that third camp, those folks don't share with anybody almost ever. So one of the things that I think has kind of set us back a little bit as when we look at kind of the global incident response community, in particular around C-certs, is that the spirit behind creating the C-certs has caused a problem all on its own that I don't think everybody had realized. Like you can't send spooky people out to try to make friends because once people find out that's who they are, they don't want to be their friend anymore. And no offense, not many people like cops at the party. So there's that factor as well. Any thoughts on that? No, I, again, I couldn't agree more. I think, again, it's very easily said, you know, let's share information. But, you know, you mentioned, I think that's a very good category. The different mandates, the different legal mandates. Mm -hmm. Personally, you know, if we, you know, there's obviously a legal basis. That's always, you know, one of the questions, you know, can we share it? You know, what's the legal basis to share different formats, different standards? You know, even after all those years, you know, we might attack, a, you know, framework. We have other uh, sticks and taxi I know from reports that in ESA, the EU cybersecurity agency did uh, a while ago, you know, 
a lot of them still like to share via email, you know, an Excel spreadsheet. So I think there's that problem that really makes automation very difficult. I think it's not a problem of a lack of platforms. It's just too many platforms. You know, we were just talking about CSER communities, but you have your Cyber Threat Alliance, you have, you know, other you know, Cyber Defense Alliance, you have all these alliances, you have obviously, you know, the ISACs, you have other platforms where it's all about sharing information. And then looking at an organization, you know, you then have, you know, network NIS and NIS2 and then Dora. And, you know, now we have Mika for the cryptocurrency space. You know, we have Target. I'm talking about the EU now, but there's a multitude of directives and legislation. They all come potentially, you know, with different data points that you need to report on, different timelines. So it's hugely complicated in itself. So I think trying to simplify that is going to be a big challenge. And I think one way to start maybe is to say, well, what's the common goal? Because that's, sorry, I missed that as a big question is always the why and for what reason are we sharing that information? What are you going to do with the IOCs or what is law enforcement actually going to do with IOCs? Typically, you know, that's not what they're looking for. But answering those questions, and I don't think there's an easy answer to that, but at least to be, I think it's important to be aware of, you know, those challenges and to address them to the extent possible. Because as we all know, you know, the problem is that the other side certainly does not have those uh, limitations. You know, if the back of the guys want to work together, you know, they, even if, if they don't trust each other, they, they'll share whatever they need to share to reach their goal, you know, cross-border internationally. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, we are, and that we even even talked about that, you know, international sharing of information, you know, your MLATs and your, you know, mutual legal assistance treaties that would, might take six or nine months to even get a response, you know from a service provider. So I think it's complicated, it's difficult, but I think what what you just did, you know, classifying the problem, having different categories, and then seeing how can we, how can we work on those categories? How can we sort of reduce the complexity, find some business cases and make it work? And then some things, and you may have seen this as well, you know, once you have a success, once you see, well, you know, that actually sharing the piece of information with, you know, that party, it actually had an impact, you know, it, it really made a difference. And I think that may help to sort of slowly build up that trust to foster the exchange of information. It is extremely important. We need to have it, you know, having those silos and then, you know, also the, the differentiation that you alluded to that, you know, between the military side of things and law enforcement, you know, and then the intelligence side of things, it doesn't help because, you know, we need to have all that together to have a complete picture. I will so say, so say though that, Another challenge I see with that is a tendency to overclassify things, you know. And we've seen this so many times where something is, you know, highly classified and then, you know, you you Google it and, you know, it's out there in the internet. But yet, you know, somebody says, no, no, this is a huge classified. So I think also applying your classification properly because, you know, we all know if everything's highly classified, nothing is highly classified. So especially with some of those communities that you mentioned, there's sort of a tendency to you know, build up the secrecy. So whatever information we have is, you know, super classified. For you know, sure. some of it may be, but a lot of it may not be, you know, very sensitive or classified or you may I, be sitting with... I would argue is- almost none of it is that sensitive. I, in fact, I would argue that the the mo- many, if not all, of those kind of communities where they are even privy to things that they could share where they default to overclassification is because they believe that having that information that only they have in their head makes them more important. And it's like an ego classifier as opposed to actually, is this useful? You know, to circle back just for the sake of poking fun. So I say this to be completely facetious, 
But when I was starting the ISAC, you know, we needed to tackle how do we transport unified data in a unified format to anybody who needs it, including into, you know, federated data exchanges and things like this. And, you know, Stix Taxi came along. And after being intimately familiar with Stix Taxi, I can tell you it's either, it's one of two things. It's either an invention by the storage manufacturing industry that convinced us because only they could turn a single DNS RR into 10 megabytes, or the same person who's responsible for DNS amplification attacks and like NTP amplification attacks and things like that is the same author who invented that stuff. No, I'm saying this in jest, folks, if you're listening. So. But yeah, it's an amazing balloon. Like if you really want to use up some storage, you know, put your passive DNS data into sticks format. Absolutely. <laughs> but that sort of touches the point of, you know, what information you need. And typically when you look at cybersecurity, cyberdefense, having IOCs in, uh, indicators of compromise, you know, very detailed information is hugely important. Mm-hmm. Now for law enforcement, that's typically not the case. You know, right. we need more aggregated information where, you know, where a human analyst that looked at that you try to, to connect the dots. So it's a different process, different type of data. So that's another challenge that I would see. I think one of the things we do, and maybe going back to the networks that we have, you know, one particular network I would like to mention is something that we actually not own. We give it a home and it's a joint cybercrime action task force because one of the strengths of Europol is that we have 27 EU member states that have seconded colleagues to the building. But the same goes for all the non-EU partners. For instance, the US is currently present with 11 different agencies, you know, and so is Australia, New Zealand, and Colombia. Now, EC3, the European Cyber Center, was established in January 2013. In 2014, we said, you know, it's great to have those seconded experts, but most of them are not cybercrime experts. Why don't we establish a separate platform that is led by those members, intelligence-led, operational, international law enforcement platform, and that's what we created in 2014, the Joint Cybercrime Action Task Force. Mm-hmm. And it's been a huge success. We're currently sitting at, I think it's close to 19 members, you know. So it's 11 EU member states and eight uh, non-EU member states. The US is currently present with four different agencies. Australia is present. Now this is, we host that platform. It's run by currently, I think Poland is, is the chair. The US, US Secret Service is the co-chair. This is a unique international law enforcement platform where all those members call, you know, they share one big room. So they sit together, they have that trust environment. And that's where most, if not all of the cases that we support are being, you know, coordinated, deconflicted internationally, where, you know, they agree on what is the most successful strategy. And to me, that's another hugely important platform that we've established and that we give a home but it goes to the points that you also mentioned, you know, it, it has that trust environment. People know each other. So the sharing of information is, you know, happens more freely within, of course, the legal frameworks, but it's a hugely successful platform. Oh, well, that's great to hear because that's, I guess, you know, the expression that proof is in the pudding, right? There's a lot of people who like to cook pudding, but there haven't been many times in particular in cyber where the end result, people asked for a second helping. There's, all, there's really only been a few, and in particular around government-oriented, you know, ones. Because I just mentioned two other successful groups, but those are privately, you know, to where people are there out of free will. So switching gears a little bit, what do you think are some of the biggest cybersecurity risks that organizations face today? And this can be, you know, based on the things that you've seen at Europol or just even your own assessment of kind of the landscape. And based on that, how do people prepare to handle those risks? So I think certainly looking at at current, you know, state of the art 
environments, IT, ICT environments. I think it's complexity. That's certainly one of the biggest challenges, you know, not looking at the threats, but just, you know, at the landscape that you have to protect as a cybersecurity specialist. I think complexity is certainly one of one of the huge challenges that everybody faces, you know, legacy systems combined with, you know, state-of-the-art uh, new technology, the Internet of Things, shadow IT, all those concepts where, you know, you have more and more devices that are being connected to the Internet. And then you have uh, situations where, you know, your attack might not come through, you know, an endpoint, like a typical endpoint, which could be a laptop, but it might be some thermostat that is connected to the Internet or you know, some medical device that is being connected to it. So I think complexity is certainly something that is getting harder and harder to defend. Obviously, there are solutions out there to make that happen. I think it's also, you know, I mentioned legacy systems and there is, you know, for the right reasons, there's a focus on zero days and new vulnerabilities. But what we equally see is the thousand day vulnerabilities, you know, take Heartbleed or any kind of uh, well-reported vulnerability and at any given point in time you can rest assured that you know there are still thousands or hundreds of thousands of machines out there that have that vulnerability and you know i want to cry nopeche as a good example you know we still look at some of the sinkholes and we still have hundreds of thousands of machines reporting to the sinkholes which means there's still a very large number of infected machines out there with something that's now you know, considered to be old. And I think that's certainly a risk as well. I think an over tendency to really sort of focus on the newest thing and, and the, the zero days, which is important, but I think we should not forget that there is existing well-documented vulnerabilities. Absolutely. And what we see from a criminal point of view, thank you, is, you know, why, why should criminals change their approach? Why should they invest and become innovative if the old thing still works? You know, they don't, they don't have to. So I think that's that's also important. And of course, we're talking about asset management, and which is in itself very complicated. But you know, trying to do vulnerability management uh, and to do this properly, and look at patching and patch management. I think those are huge challenges and really important. Now, in terms of threats, you know, ransomware is still dominating the scene for the time being. But equally, you know, CEO fraud be massive. You know, more relying on social engineering or abusing artificial intelligence now, mm-hmm. still you know, causing massive damages. But I think ransomware is at the top, and I think why ransomware is such a huge problem and threat and a global cybersecurity risk is that it, of course, the impact goes way beyond the financial damage. You know, if you look at, you know, obviously you had the case in the US with the pipeline attacks, but you know there are many documented attacks against hospitals, critical infrastructure. You know, cases where in Germany they had to transfer patients from ICUs from one hospital to the other hospital, and they died. You know. So, because one hospital was attacked by a ransomware. So, I think this is a huge international cybersecurity risk that really, you know, goes against critical infrastructure and, you know, may affect not just uh, our well-being, you know, if, if, if the hospitals are being attacked, then that has a huge impact. So, I think ransomware is really something that we need to address globally. And it's good to see the many initiatives that we have there, you know, the ransomware task force in the U.S., there's a EU-US ransomware working group. The G7 is looking into it. A lot of it is uh, strategic, and that's good. So we've developed uh, with the Joint Cybercrime Action Task Force and our international partners and EU member states, the International Ransomware Response Model, which is very operational. And one of the things we try to do there is not just go after one group or one bad guy, but we've sort of tried to, we're looking at the crime as a service model, the underground that you know fuels cybercrime, where you have the tools and the service that you need to commit cybercrime, meaning you don't have the technical expertise necessarily to do so. 
one of the things we do as part of the strategy is to see what are the choking points where if I take out this service that will not just impact one group, it may impact five or six or seven groups. You know, that could be a rogue cryptocurrency exchange. That could be a criminal VPN service that is used by different groups to hide their tracks. That could be, you know, a service for to spool phone calls. That could be a service to, I don't know, translate uh, spam emails. You know, that could be counter AV service to test your ransomware. Mm -hmm. And that's what we do as part of the international ransomware response model. We go after those key service providers, those key tools that are used by different groups with the idea that we have the biggest impact and disrupting effect in the ransomware underground, you know, to the ransomware as a service model. And I think that's what we try to do there to disrupt the risks. The other thing I see, and I think you see this now with artificial intelligence, you know, we drafted, I think about two years, two and a half years ago, I had a question from a journalist saying, you know, do you see crimes abusing AI? And I said, actually, I don't know. But that triggered our first report. So we teamed up with Trend Micro and the UN and published our first report again, available on our website on the malicious users and abuses of AI. So we looked at what can we see already now from using AI to improve their attacks or trying to overcome AI-based defense systems and what will the future hold? It's a you know doom and gloom report, but we also have some reports, some recommendations in there. And if you look at CO fraud, it's default. I mean, they're using openly available tools to emulate the voice of CEOs. They use software to, you know, create deep fakes of a CEO to improve their attacks. I think one of the examples was, you know, after the FTX uh, collapse, you know, there was uh, shortly after criminals had used the video of Sam uh, Bankman Freed and they've changed the message. Basically, he was saying to the victims, you know, I, I will help you go to this website, you know, register with your credentials. So it just goes to show you how quickly criminals adapt and use available tools to improve their attacks. And the latest report I mentioned that before is, is ChatGPT. And I think that's, again, we looked at it and other similar like um, uh, BART, you know, the Google's counter, you know, LLM, uh, large language model tool to see how quickly criminals can use that to write better spam emails, you know, even potentially write ransomware codes. You know, they've been able to jailbreak some of these instances already. So I think that to me is certainly a risk that we need to look at. And the challenge I see there is the speed at which things, you know, get the time to market. It's becoming so short. So almost every other week, you, you know, you see a new feature. And I think that's going to be a challenge to keep up with that, to defend your systems, look at the legacy systems, the old, the well-known vulnerabilities, but also keep an eye on what's happening in that space. You know, how do I need that app? Is that relevant to me? ChatGPT, how do I, you know, prepare for that? What are the real risks for my organization? Yeah, the uh, the AI revolution is upon us, and uh, folks Absolutely. out there, if you are not making the steps right now to understand this technology, you are in for a very rude awakening because yeah. the adversaries, well, the whole world is moving towards AI, and so you have no choice but to go with. You know, we ran, you were talking about this, the thousand-day attack, the thousand day, right? The K day, let's call it that. One's an O day and the other's a K day. That's so uh, with, yeah. we coined it right here. So <laughs> Philip Amon coined it with my help here on, on, on the future <laughs> Cyberist podcast. But no, so we take the other end of the spectrum, right? The K day. I just wanted to frame this for you. It's not your imagination. It's not just your opinion. So we ran, Team Cymru, we ran one of the Conficker family sinkholes for, I guess, what's how old is Conficker now? A decade or yeah. more? So we ran it that whole time, and I was able to do some raw analysis of the findings. 
And what we found was two things. Majority of the victims to the 85 or so percent ballpark was remediated or disappeared within about 200 days, 190 something days was where it tapered down. It was a very quick drop, you know, within like five days because we were doing the sinkhole effort was a DNS redirection. You would pull up this test and it would say, hey, yeah, you have looked this up in the past type of a thing. And it was a community service. We were just members of the working group. It was like, you know, major internet community effort. But I had one of the families, I had a full set of the data over its entire lifespan. And so I I did some analysis of, of that data. And what I found was that exactly what you said. So the remaining 15 to 13 something percent of, of the devices never went away. They went on forever. And it occurred to me there was a very, it's very strange to think But there have probably only been a few instances in the world where a technical advancement in one area actually goes on to cause a problem somewhere else. And in this case, it's the reliable hardware. So ball bearings, micro bearings, micro bearings and hard drives, resiliency in PSUs that you find, because it turns out the real attrition that causes remediation for 15 or so percent of the threats that we see on the internet on a, let's call them of an infective type of category of threats. The only thing that makes those go away is when the hardware fails. And so, but hardware manufacturers have made stuff that don't fail. And I'm kind of, I don't want, you know, people mailing me nasty letters. So I'll be careful how I say this, but there are automotive manufacturers, for example, BMW, their cars have components in them with the notion of planned obsolescence. And the reason being, so there is a gasket that runs through the center of a BMW engine horizontally that you are required to change every N, where N is some number of years, I forget how long it was, because it biodegrades on purpose. And the reason why it biodegrades is because you have to rebuild the top of the motor in order to get down to where that is. And that's actually what they wanted you to do. They put this gasket halfway through the engine to require you to build, to disassemble the engine to get down to where that gasket is, because those okay. things that you disassembled along the way need that maintenance in, in in order to maintain the performance of the engine. And so they built in targets within the engine that would require the path that you follow to get there as a mechanic to you to do the needed preventive maintenance on the other parts of the engine. And no offense, that's evil, but a genius at the same time. And, but we don't have that and we don't have that in IT. SSL certificates have an expiration date on them, right? But you can still ignore it and keep on going. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting to, when you think about it, that the fact that technology and hardware is so good that 15% of infected devices out on the internet will never go away because they made the computer too good and it doesn't die. So <laughs> that's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. Collateral damage of, you know, of success. Are, they're, they're too reliable. But, you know, one of the things we tried to do is in, in the operation that we support is, you know, to always be creative and push the boundaries. And the Emotet takedown was the first good example where, well, initially we were, you know, quite successful. Yes, we know it came back and, and whatnot. But one of the things, we did, and that was sort of definitely a legal challenge, but also a technical challenge was to actually, you know, reach out to those infected devices, making sure that there was a legal basis to do so and neutralize or replace the malware. 
And now that's technically very, very difficult. It's legally a challenge. And also, you know, there's a risk that comes with it because as you would know, I mean, some of those machines, infected machines, you know, it could be, I don't know, it could be a Windows machine in a hospital that powers an MRI machine or whatever, you know, so shutting that down or causing that machine to shut down may have a, a real impact. So, you know, a similar thing happened with the Flubot um, operation that we supported, this Android-based, you know, malware, uh, really trying to do something about the infected machines. And I think that's where we're trying to constantly push the boundaries to see what can we actually actively do with our partners, you know, with industry, the CSERT community, to do something about those infected machines, especially those that, you know, as you just described, and, and thanks for confirming that, never go away, you know, what can we do? You know, can we just accept that or is there something that we can do? Now, again, that again comes with legal, you know, significant legal implications, but also technical challenges. But I think we need to look into that. Yeah, no, outrageous legal challenge there. I mean, at least here in the United States, the way our legislative mechanisms are and, and our rights, it would be very hard. I mean, it took us a long time to just pass vehicle emission components. Yeah. There, in fact, I believe there are still states in the United States that don't even have vehicle emission laws where it's just because they won't, they just won't. You can't come tell somebody that they can't, you know, do that. It's kind of remarkable. So, Philip, that's all the time that we have this week. You know, we try to hit a sweet spot for people to enjoy it over, you know, lunch or dinner, but we try not to make it like a 10 course, uh, you know, Michelin <laughs> dinner that they're shooting for. So it's been very enlightening. And to our listeners, we work with our guests beforehand and we come up with, you know, topics that we plan to turn into questions. But in this case, of the ones that we actually prepared, Philip and I only got through just about half. Uh, so apparently he and I are, are a dangerous time combination. Uh, so <laughs> for what it's worth, Philip, I'd hope that we could maybe have you come back sometime. You have a very insightful perspective on things. You've had a, a great deal of experiences and you're an exceptional communicator. You're, like I said, it was very easy uh, for us to, I guess, get in the weeds. And I think people appreciate it because it's much more realistic view of what's going on in the world. So given that we're out of time though, if there are folks who want to see what you're doing next, you know, gather your opinions or just perhaps take advantage of the social network that you have, because, you know, I assume you reshare the works of, you know, peers that our listeners may not even know to listen to. How can people follow your work? Well, you know, I'm on LinkedIn, I'm on, uh, on, on Twitter, so I'm happy to connect to folks and to uh, share my, you know, the things I see and, and know about, but equally to learn from them. And I, I think, you know, just to give back to you the compliment, it's been a, a learning experience for me as well to listen to your stories and learn from you. And that's always the great thing. And, you know, I do hope the listeners find that interesting, but I, I just like uh, to engage with uh, people who have, you know, like in your case, also your experience and, and insight. So that's, um, I think that hopefully was uh, or is of interest to the audience. Yeah, but, you know, feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn and uh, and Twitter. So those are my two main platforms and I'd be happy to connect and uh, share whatever experience I have, but equally learn from, from other folks and listen to their stories and uh, the points that they may have um, that, uh, you know, may give me new perspectives on things. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for the compliments as well. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. And I hope to all the listeners out there uh, enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Future of Cyber Risk podcast brought to you by Team Cymru. For the latest episodes, please visit team-cymru.com or search Future of Cyber Risk on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks, and we'll catch you on the next episode.